Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We have gotten to Thursday, and we have gotten to the end of Joe Biden's big address to the nation this yep. morning on new aid for Ukraine. And maybe we should just take a minute and bask in the performance of our president oh. there on, on a national, but really an international stage. I don't know, John. Oh, man. Maybe it was hyperbole. Uh, I feel like maybe this is the most embarrassing I have ever seen him. His teeth fell out again. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. At first I was thinking, is he actually like, is he having a stroke? Is he not able to form words? And then I realized, yeah, he's having a problem with his dentures, yes. which makes it a little bit better. Like wearing dentures a does not bit. disqualify you from, from being no. in public office, but that is obviously not the only problem. And like, it no. really is. I, I don't know to say other than it's, it, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. You know, I, I, even if you don't like the president, I think all Americans want to respect the president, mm-hmm. whoever the president happens to be, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us want to feel sorry for the president because right. he's a confused old man who can't keep his dentures in his mouth. It just is not. I mean, anyone can have a uh, anyone, you know, I, I mean, I was thinking, like, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to, like, stand up and and address the United States from the White House with the eyes of every news organization on me. I'm going to make sure that my dentures are in place and I'm going to make sure that my, you know, my tie is tied and whatever else. But of course, you can say that and like, but, you know, accidents happen. That's that's totally fine. But yeah, he doesn't look he doesn't look confident in what he's saying. No, most of the time he He doesn't look confident. In the words he's choosing, it just like, yeah. yeah, but then it just goes off the rails half the time. He, yeah, he went off the rails. He Again. started off strongly, and I thought to myself, okay, good. This is an important speech. He wants to be at his best. He shouldn't be tired. It's 1130 in the morning. Uh, and then a few minutes into it, he appeared to get confused. Yeah. Or distracted or something. And maybe distracted by his dentures. Maybe, around, but maybe. Honestly, and again, not trying to be ageist, right? No, no, there are lots no. of There are lots of people who are Joe Biden's age who are really, uh, who are cogent, who are who sure. are with it, who, you know, you could feel some confidence in. Mm-hmm. I do think we shouldn't have presidents who are quite so old. Yes. But again, this is a, this is a Biden specific issue as well. And we yes. haven't even gotten to the content of, of his speech, which is, you know, of course, yeah, that wow. we he is asking Congress for not uh, not the hundreds of millions anymore. We're not playing that game. And now no. we are up to thirty three billion dollars in one in fell aid. swoop. Thirty three billion dollars. Yeah. And it, it, it was funny. He didn't say where this money was coming from. Uh, but then he said. We cut the budget deficit last night or last year, and we'd like to thank the Republicans who joined us in that. And we want we want to cut the deficit more. Wait a minute. Which one's it going to be? You're going to cut the deficit more or are you going to spend thirty three billion dollars that we don't have that has not been appropriated by the congressional committees? To send to uh, to Ukraine. I mean, that's what he's asking. He's asking them to do now. But, yeah, I think people should start. However you feel about this war. I do think people should start to feel pretty angry about the huge sums of money that we are able to come up with for this support, much of which is going not to Ukraine, but to NATO allies to, you know, uh, fill their arsenals. Yes. Right. Much of which, of course, will go directly into the hands of of weapons manufacturers because that is, you know, that's what a lot of this aid is going for, that we can do that. And yet we can't. 
you know, we, we can't uh, make the expanded child tax credit permanent. You know, we can't do anything at all about our health care. So we can't have a single payer health care system. We can't right. do any of these things. We can't, we can't have can't... Def- decent infrastructure in this country. I no, mean, you're you're well traveled. Mm-hmm. You, you've been to airports around the world. Airports in countries that, you know, have some trouble making ends meet financially. You you go through their airports and you say, my God, this is better than so most better. any airport in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, if more Americans uh, spent any time overseas, they would come back uh, deeply they would embarrassed. Be embarrassed yeah. by JFK. Or not right. a, they LaGuardia, would, Dulles. Or you would recognize the absolute contempt that our leadership holds us in. Because our roads would be better were that not the case. Our infrastructure would be better were that not the case. We would have reasonable laws uh, guaranteeing a certain level of income were that not the case. You know, I have a friend who visited uh, the United States for the very first time from Lebanon. And she said that she was shocked at the condition of our roads and highways. Yeah. Shocked. She said, I can't believe people aren't in the streets over the condition of your roads and highways. They're disgraceful. Again, on top of 800 million last week, 800 million the week before, 33 billion today. And yet, you know, we can't we can't let families have an extra four hundred dollars a month or something in tax credits because they have kids. It is. I mean, people should be pretty mad. Speaking of economic news, we are going to be talking about this more later in the show, but uh, we are obviously going to talk about this economic contraction that is being downplayed uh, across the board. I mean, I could make a joke about how it's being strenuously downplayed by NPR, but everyone seems to be saying this. Okay, GDP shrank by 1.4 percent, but consumer spending is still strong. Businesses are still investing. Employment is high. (laughs) NPR was actually saying, also, hotel rooms are very expensive. Hotel rooms are 14% more expensive than they were in 2019, (laughs) as though we're supposed to go, oh, good, okay, that's it. We'll put that in the good side. I'm not making 14% more than I was making in 2019, so it does not cheer me that those, but it's, you know, a sign that consumer spending remains strong. And so they, the prediction right now, at least, seems to to be that growth will resume in the next quarter, which will keep us out officially of recession. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, of course, remains to be seen. And yeah, I'm really I'm really worried about this. I really am, because like many Americans, I I would like to buy a home at some point, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's just something small and modest, maybe even an apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. With inflation like this, especially housing inflation. And interest rates. And interest rates skyrocketing. Yeah. Yeah. Just not possible. And this is the sort of weird contrast, which we'll try to get into. But um, so we we have the economy technically shrinking, GDP shrinking. 1.4%. The dollar doing great. The dollar having its best monthly gain in a decade this month uh, gained 4.5%. This is being attributed to the interest rate hikes, Mm -hmm. of course, that are making our mortgage rates now so incredibly high. And so it's interesting. It is also likely that the dollar is doing well because other currencies in Japan's in particular uh, are really in the tank. Right. And so by comparison, the dollar is much stronger, again, uh, attributed to these rate hikes. But it does, you know, it makes me wonder you're in great economic shape right now if you are in a position to be trading in currencies. Right. If you're swapping huge amounts of currency around, uh, you're you're in a purple patch. Yes. Right now, if you are just a regular person who wants to maybe buy a house and is looking at getting a mortgage, you are really 
being screwed. And I don't know if the two are unrelated, right? It does feel a little bit like, you know, one is being squeezed Mm -hmm. to support the other. And, you know, tomorrow I'm really hoping to get into a a pair of stories. One, highlighting um, the top U.S. companies raising prices despite their soaring profits, right? So going through and pointing out here, Chipotle is in there. There are a bunch of other ones in there going like, your profits have increased by like 400%. And yet you have also increased your prices by 9%. And you're saying, oh, we have to do it because of, you know, uh, commodity costs. Absolutely not the case. Also, uh, you will not be surprised that that also tends to correlate with uh, soaring profits and stagnant wages. So I want to talk about that and also talk about this um, interesting report this week from Salon uh, that prosecutions of corporate criminals have hit a record low under Merrick Garland, right? Because, of course, we're not seeing inflation because of economic policies or anything else. It's because of uh, price gouging by corporations, which you'd think Biden's Department of Justice would be really keen to attack if that was the cause of inflation. But remember that Obama's Justice Department wasn't so keen either. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we went through this four, eight, 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I hope we are not going to go through what we exactly what we went through uh, eight or 12 years ago. But I hope not. We will have to see. We are, of course, uh, later on going to talk a little bit more about what might be coming for Twitter with Elon Musk uh, eventually taking over. But why uh, there seem to be some changes afoot already. We are going to talk about microwaves and how they are yeah. coming for you. And maybe the, my favorite story uh, in quite some time. Uh, we are, of course, going to talk a little bit about what is actually going on uh, on the grounds in Ukraine. We'll, uh, I think, get into the U.N. Secretary General. He's been in Moscow. He's been in Kiev. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Turkey and yes. Saudi Arabia chumming it up. Well, on their way, on their way to uh, full reconciliation and what the timing of these moves mean and how to really see Turkey as a NATO ally, because I think that is an interesting, interesting relationship. And I'm curious if it is sort of a harbinger for for NATO's future or if we're just sort of being racist and Turkey's kind of doing what everybody else in NATO is doing anyway. Right. I'm I'm interested in that conversation. I'd love to I'd love to take a look at that. Yeah, I, I think that'll be cool. And also, I know that I know that John has a very important public service announcement. I, do. I have a public service message for all of our listeners, and I need to tell a, a sh- very short story to set it up. A, a close friend of mine called me this morning and said that uh, a couple of weeks ago he had gotten a call from the FBI and they wanted to have a friendly chat about a friend of his. Okay, rule number one: don't ever talk to the FBI. If you feel compelled to talk to the FBI, don't do it unless you have your attorney sitting in the chair next to you. I can't be any more clear about this. Don't talk to the FBI. But my friend talked to the FBI and he said the FBI agent couldn't have been any more friendly. And the FBI agent asked him about another friend of his what's this friend doing what's the friend involved in has the friend ever mentioned taking a bribe that kind of thing my friend didn't know anything about it the fbi called him again a week later hey let's meet at the dunkin donuts and have another friendly conversation so foolishly he did he had another conversation and again said i don't know anything about bribery i don't know anything about x y and z Today, he got in his car to go to work and his phone pinged him and it said that 
an unauthorized um, Apple. What's that little thing called? That little disc uh, tracker tracker was was following him. So now he's panicked because the FBI put this tracker on his car. But the thing is, I told him, listen, the FBI has far more sophisticated uh, uh, surveillance equipment than the Apple uh, eye tracker. They're not going to go to the Apple store to buy a tracker to track you. They did it because they wanted you to find it and they wanted you to know that they're following you so that when you remove the tracker from your wheel well where he found it affixed with a magnet and you throw it away, then they can charge you with interfering with a federal investigation and then offer to drop the charge out of the goodness of their heart if you testify against your buddy who they're accusing of bribery. Mm -hmm. So now here's a guy who has nothing to do with anybody or anything, just wanted to go to work and live his life, and now he's stuck up to his neck in a case with the FBI. Again, my public service announcement for everybody. Don't talk to the FBI. Yep. Make a cross stitch of it. Period. Make a cross stitch of it. Hang it up on your wall. Thank you for that. We're going to take a quick break after that important public service announcement uh, and come right back with our first guest. Hang on. You'll hear it all here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. President Biden this morning gave a speech from the White House in which he said that the Ukraine war would be a protracted struggle and that it would be particularly difficult for countries like Poland and Bulgaria, which will no longer receive Russian gas shipments. Biden added that the U.S. and its NATO allies would continue to ship heavy weapons to Ukraine. We're going to spend that $33 billion on these weapons. President Putin responded that Russia has all the tools needed to respond, including ballistic missiles and a nuclear arsenal. British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said that Ukraine would be justified if, or if it were to attack targets inside Russia. And he said he believed the war would drag on and would devolve into what he called a slow-moving frozen occupation. We're joined by Jim Jatras, former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Welcome back, Jim. Hey, John. Good to be with you. Christos Anesti. Alithos Anesti, my friend. Thank you for joining us. I wanted to start off by saying that one of the things we're hearing from, from all sides is that this really is transforming into a protracted battle. Our guest yesterday, Dr. Peter Kuznick uh, from American University, said that he could see this war dragging on for years. U.S. and U.K. policymakers, likewise, are now telling us that they're preparing for a protracted war. Do you agree with this, Jim, that this is not going to be quick? Do you think that it's going to be protracted? No, not at all. I think people can make a mistake between a protracted conflict and one where the outcome is not in doubt and that the winning side is simply pursuing a very deliberative strategy of essentially vivisecting the target country, dividing it up, destroying its forces without inflicting a whole lot of damage on the infrastructure 
And, uh, and, I, and I think that's exactly what the Russians are doing, uh, that all this talk about shipping weapons and so forth is great in terms of having uh, more people killed and more damage being done. It's not going to change the outcome. And this really is not a protracted conflict by any means, for my, in my opinion. You know, that's, that's very interesting. And it's something that I agree with. I think that, that it's easy to to describe something that really is uh, uh, an ongoing um, problem or issue between two countries like Russia and Ukraine and consider it to be part of a longer term war. But I I think Jim's right. Uh, I'm not sure that active hostilities are going to go on forever, Uh, but I I can certainly see this this being a, a thorn in relations between the two countries. Well, Jim, another issue that has so many observers worried is the notion that with NATO sending heavier and more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine, the Russians too will use heavier weapons. Today, President Putin reminded the West that Russia has these ballistic missiles and a nuclear arsenal. What do you think we should take from a statement like that? Is that a threat? It is definitely. And I think we need to make a distinction here between sending, quote, heavy weapons to Ukraine and fighting a war that Ukraine has already lost versus how directly involved NATO becomes. For example, there was, regarding the first part, there was an excellent piece posted on the moon of Alabama Mm. the other day about Germany making a big show sending, quote, tanks to Ukraine. And in fact, these were not tanks. They were essentially um, uh, track-mounted anti-aircraft uh, guns that will take approximately a year for the crews to be properly trained on if they can get the ammunition, which they may not be able to get. And these are outdated systems anyway that won't do very much good, even if they were able to use them. That's the kind of symbolic, quote, help for Ukraine that is being sent to the NATO countries. The much more dangerous thing is the extent to which we may be seeing NATO countries becoming directly involved themselves. There's still the question of what happened to the Moskva. Uh, and whether it was struck by anything that the Ukrainians did or there was something that might have been directly done by NATO countries. We also have the question of who exactly is holed up there in uh, Mariupol underground with some of the Azov Battalion guys. There are a lot of reports, and they're not confirmed yet, that there are NATO personnel down there. If we get to the point where NATO becomes directly engaged, Uh, The Russians will respond, and I think they will respond in a devastating way. Let's remember, they're only using about 10 to 20 percent of their total force in Ukraine. They're holding the rest of the reserves in case there is a breakout of hostilities directly between NATO and Russia, and that could escalate to indescribable proportions. Did you happen to see this article, Jim, in today's Washington Post about the design of the Russian T-72 tank? Um, It said that that Western um, militaries have been looking at this tank and its predecessor uh, ever since the first Gulf War. And it's got a serious design flaw, they said. Um, In the Russian design, they they made this tank uh, lower to the ground than American tanks are, which makes it harder to hit. And that's a good thing if you're a Russian. But the turret is able to, to store two other rounds beside the round that is, so to speak, chambered. And as a result, if the tank is hit by an anti-tank round, it explodes the, the uh, rounds that are in the turret and it pops the turret off and kills the three soldiers inside. 
And that's why we're seeing so many um, Russian tanks with the turrets off uh, and burned out along the side of roads in uh, in Ukraine. Now, at at first glance, that sounded like an interesting piece of of analysis to me. And then at second glance, I thought to myself, the Russians aren't stupid. They would have known if there was a design flaw in 1991 when the Iraqis were using these tanks in the Gulf War. They have since uh, worked to correct it in 1995, I think, is when the T-72 came out. Um, I wondered if this was a piece of propaganda, if this article had been planted in the in the Western media. Uh, what do you I know you're not a weapons um, expert, but but you are a keen observer of these kinds of things. What do you think about articles that appear in the U.S. media like this where they tell us, oh, my gosh, the Russians can't win this war because, look, they're so stupid that the tops of their tanks pop off. What do we make of this? Well, I, th- I think my spidey sense goes up the same way yours does yeah. about uh, the you know, BS uh, detector here. Um, look, first off, just the notion that, oh, we've seen so many Russian tanks with their tops pop off. I'm not sure that that's really the case. I'd be skeptical of that report right there. I mean, let's remember that the Ukrainians are using essentially the same design of Soviet equipment as the Russians are using, although a lot of the Russian equipment has been upgraded yeah, and modernized. Yeah, good point. Which the Ukrainians have not. And we've seen many instances where destroyed Ukrainian equipment was being passed off by the rah, 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 the Ukrainians are winning media as destroyed Russian equipment. So, I, you know, look, let me put it this way. If it's in the Washington Post, I'm already inclined to be skeptical. And, and, and for a number of reasons, I would, I would think that this is this just a disinformation. Yeah. Jim, um, Turkish President Erdogan will make a trip to Saudi Arabia in the near future as part of efforts to put the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi behind them. This comes at a time when U.S.-Saudi relations are not so good, uh, to put it simply. Why is this Turkish trip taking place now? Is it, in your mind, because the Turks and the Saudis are ready to move forward in their relations, or is this more of a message to the United States? I think it's both of those things, but I think it's also a sense that uh, both the Saudis and the Turks have that in the what is uh, the, will, really will be the protracted conflict, not necessarily the one in Ukraine, but rather a face down between uh, the global American empire on the one hand and the rising power, as I see it, of Eurasia. There yeah. are a lot of countries that are not only hedging their bets, but clearly marking out uh, which direction they think is probably the more advantageous one for them. But, you know, the, the, the real one to point to in that regard is India, for example, that the United States has ex, uh, expended so much nonsense over the last few years of this so-called quad against China. And the Indians have made it pretty clear where they think their interests lie. I think the Saudis, the Turks, I expect the Gulf states and other countries to start drifting in that direction. And this is just another indication of that. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, continuing on uh, this this issue of Turkey, l- let's talk for a second about the role of Turkey in NATO. You know, it. listen, you and I are both biased against Turkey. I, I admit it freely. I admit my bias against Turkey. But Turkey really does seem to be playing both sides of the fence in this uh, war. It's uh, It's not imposed any uh, any sanctions or restrictions on Russia. And then at the same time, it's selling drones to Ukraine that the Ukrainians can then use to attack uh, Russian uh, troops. Uh, Turkey continues to occupy a chunk of northern Syria. It has recently launched drone strikes into Iraq, 
to kill members of the the patriotic, not the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party. It's thumbing its nose at the U.S. with the timing of this Saudi visit. Never mind the years long purge of people allegedly associated with the the so-called attempted coup of 2016. There was just a, a trial this past week where a, a prominent and very wealthy Turk was sentenced to life in prison. This is very interesting behavior for a NATO ally, is it not? Should we see Turkey as something of an outlier or should we see this behavior as a sign that even within the ranks of those upholding the the rules based international order, there's less respect for the bosses of that order? Or last question here, are we just being biased? Is Turkey Turkey's behavior no different from, say, France's behavior in, in Africa or Hungary's refusal to toe the line on some of these Russian issues? Uh, let's let's uh, set our biases aside here and say a good word about Turkey in the sense that, unlike, say, oh, Greece, for example, uh, that in Istanbul, excuse me, in Ankara, you actually have a government that puts its own national interests first, unlike the one in Athens, which right. actually toadies up the Washington. Right. And, uh, and, you know, that's always been, to some extent, true of Turkey, even during the first Cold War with the Soviet Union, the, the Turks maintained a fairly warm relationship with Moscow when it was in their interest to do so. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the only thing comparable to that was, uh, for example, uh, the Gauls taking France out of the uh, NATO military command structure because he thought that was in France's interest. Unfortunately, when you look at the rest of the NATO countries, they tend to be just essentially puppets of Washington. They look, look, for example, what they're doing on the energy front, essentially destroying their own economies because of whatever the husk of Joe Biden is says that they need to do it. So, uh, I, you know, in a certain sense, I commend the Turks for their duplicity and looking out for Turkey's interests first. That's what a government in Turkey should be doing. As far as Mr. Erdogan goes, he's a survival a survivor. He's erratic, but he does seem to know how to come out on top, depending on the situation that he's being dealt. Uh, again, that's what leaders do. And, uh, and you know, to, to their credit, Turkey has a leader. Other countries, it seems, simply have these, uh, these, these yes men that wouldn't know their own national interest if they came up and bit them on the butt. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me actually very much of, uh, of Nicolae Ceausescu during the, the Warsaw Pact days. Uh, Romania was a member of the Warsaw Pact. It was a Soviet client state. And then at the same time, it maintained this, this oddly close relationship with the United States to the point where when those Soviets would come out with a new um, a new fighter jet or a new tank, we could discreetly go to Ceausescu and say, hey, listen, we'd really like to uh, get a look at, at this new plane or this new tank. And he would sell us one and we could take it apart and reverse engineer it. Um, the, the, it was the same situation for a very long time with uh, with Marshall Tito. And the Yugoslavs, we had a very good relationship with uh, with Tito, a, a very productive relationship economically and politically. So, I, you know, I, I think you're right. I think that this is a case of of a leader um, standing up for his own country's uh, uh, best interests uh, first before putting uh, the NATO alliance. And also demonstrating that... Uh, what consequences have there been? Really, there's That's been some finger shit. You know what I mean? It's it's not as though, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, well, there's a, uh, 
Muslim countries around the world haven't really uh, spoken up in a full-throated way about these alleged abuses in Xinjiang of, of the Uyghur population yes. because China is so powerful. There may be some truth to that. I don't think that you can write off all the Muslim na- nations of the world as quite that craven. <laughs> right. But, you know, this is Turkey, right? This is not uh, necessarily an economic powerhouse. You know what I mean? It's, yes. it's showing that you actually, it can be done. And the consequences will be pretty min- minimal. Yes. Maybe there will be more coming down the line at some point. But it's sort of like for all the countries that go, oh, no, well, we couldn't possibly because, you know, because a big boss is going to come along and stomp on mm-hmm. us. Well, maybe, maybe that's not such a great excuse. That's a good point. Hey, Jim, I want to change the subject for a moment. The, the Department of Homeland Security is standing up a new body called the Disinformation Governance Board, uh, the job of which will be to counter disinformation in the public domain whatever that means. The board is going to be headed by a woman by the name of Nina Yankowitz. She's a fellow at the Wilson Center, and she's an advisor to the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry. Um, I, went, I went to her personal website this morning, and um, she's young. She's very, very bright. Uh, degrees from Bryn Mawr and Georgetown and Harvard. Uh, her first book sort of put her on the map as an expert on the on the subject of of disinformation, public disinformation. Her second book is coming out imminently. Um, but she's very cl- close to the Ukrainians. Yeah. Uh, well, what do we make of this? Can I, can I toss something in here? And then, Jim, I'm sorry, I don't mean to preempt your response. I think it is also interesting. It's announced by the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. Which is a mystery it is being in and of itself. headed by someone who has a long history of uh, describing things as Russian disinformation. Yes. You know, she's an expert in Russian disinformation. She's uh, very aligned with Ukraine. She's got a little Ukrainian flag in her bio. But they're leading with this effort as primarily to stop smuggling at the border. Did you see this? Yeah. Well, in the description, they're like, mean? oh, yeah, it's mostly going to be about really this is about uh, stopping the disinformation that allows human traffickers to get victims to come with them uh, across the border, like misinformation about U.S. border policy, which really does not. I don't know, man. I don't think that like a a lot of the migrants who are coming here are getting disinformation on Twitter in Spanish or an an indigenous language from Central America that is making them come along with these. So just everything about this is, is pretty shady to me is what I'm trying to say here, Jim. Disinformation governance board. Can you think of a more Orwellian title? Oh, isn't that the truth? And in fact, it shouldn't it shouldn't be counter disinformation governance board. It makes it almost sounds like it's a board that's in, in promoting disinformation. Well, uh, which I think in effect it probably is. I mean, look, I back in the old days, again during the first Cold War, I was I served on something called the uh, the. Uh, Disinformation uh, Active Measures Working Group. Oh, yeah, sure. That was used at the time. And it was against countering Soviet disinformation, which, you know, it was a very, very different phenomenon. It was something essentially where there false stories were planted somewhere in the Western media, usually within an Indian newspaper, and then would spread into the rest of the world. It was generally pretty effective, but it was also pretty transparently false. What we're really talking about here is when they talk about this information, or for that matter, medical misinformation, uh, is essentially anybody who dissents from the narrative is being accused of lying and that has to be canceled, has to be silenced, has to be censored. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about with, you know, what's going to go on with Twitter and everything else. Uh, To me, this is simply part of the Borg 
trying to say to the rest of the peasants, don't you dare think for yourself. We'll tell you what you can read, what you can hear, and what you can say. And the fact that this uh, hotshot young lady is going to be in charge of this, I think that's par for the course. I mean, you know, maybe she cut her teeth over someplace like at, at Snopes or factcheck.org. Yeah, isn't that the truth? You know, one of the things that I'm worried about, or maybe I should rephrase that and say one of the things that I think all Americans should be worried about is is the fact that there is so little investigative journalism out there right now. And primarily it's because outlets other than the biggest papers um, just simply don't have a budget for investigative journalism. And, and a lot of those investigative journalists have have been let go. And and we're seeing it happen at BuzzFeed even right now where they're just shutting down and, and they've got serious investigative journalists. So what you have is an entire generation of journalists that that takes government press releases, gists them and then publishes it as news. Right. There's no investigation in there. There's there's no analysis. They just take whatever the government hands them and they print it and call it news. Now you've got this this disinformation governance board that's going to be looking at misinformation. It just seems to me that the, that the problem is going to be that the government is going to be the arbiter now of what's true and what's not true. And if you want, if you're a newspaper reporter or if you're a reporter of any kind and you want the truth in quotes, you're just going to take it from the government and present it. It's truth. How do we protect against that? I don't know that you can protect against. I mean, you get look, for example, at the hit piece that Daily Beast did against uh, Gonzalo Lira. Good point. And, you know, essentially that the corporate media are simply handmaids to government agencies. And I think it's it's beyond just to cover, cover uh, the, uh, the corporate media. It's also uh, virtually, virtually all the information uh, companies. You look, like even something like Wikipedia, if you look up Bucha Massacre and Wikipedia, it simply says straight out, a massacre by Russian forces of Ukrainian civilians. No question mark about it at all. Mm-hmm. Anything else is a conspiracy theory. So we're talking about such management of the information space but of this uh, this unholy alliance between government agencies and corporate media and the and the uh, and, and the and the information uh, companies that uh, there there's very little room for actual um, uh, investigative reporting. Which, uh, as you say, who's got a budget for it? And even if you did have the budget for it and produce it, how is it going to get out there to your audience without being essentially torpedoed and and um, and discredited by the the heavy hand of government and corporate censorship. Jim, in our last couple of minutes, uh, I wanted to ask you a political question. You've advised Republican leaders in the Senate and you've been active in politics for a long time. Do you see Ukraine as being a campaign issue in 2022 or even beyond? Or do you think this will be a more traditional year where voters focus on the economy? Well, yes, the economy is stupid, and if, as the the measures that are taken against Russia continue to come back and bite the hands of the Western countries, I, it'll be worse in Europe, of course, but I think we're going to continue to feel it here in the United States. I think people will focus on that. To the extent to which uh, Ukraine is an issue, I think that partly depends on whether this does blow up into a direct uh, NATO-Russia war, which I hope it does not. 
but I think other than that, in a way, how can it be a political issue when each side is simply vying for who can be more militant than the other side? And where it says be the only the only issue between the Republicans and the Democrats will be I'm more hairy chested and anti-Russian than you are. Um, and that's not really much. Uh, I don't see much uh, political mileage coming for either party coming out of that. I want to also come back just for a minute. I don't want to nitpick here this uh, this disinformation board, but there is another aspect of uh, the head's biography that that raised my eyebrows a tiny bit. She's written a lot about uh, I think one of her books is called How to Be a Woman Online. And oh, she yes. writes about the phenomenon of being trolled and, and harassed and whatever. Uh, which I don't make light of, right? Having death threats, whatever form they take, voicemail messages, DMs in your uh, Twitter inbox, whatever, it's unacceptable, right? But there is also a trend. I mean, in one of her descriptions, she talks about uh, men uh, bursting violently into your mentions like the Kool-Aid man doing blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, that's it's not an act of violence. And I do I think this is relevant to point out because it goes along with this idea that uh, information is dangerous, right? Information is dangerous. Bad information is dangerous. Bad information is maybe actual violence. And so it has to be treated with incredible, incredible seriousness, right? You can't just yes. ignore it. You can't just look up some sources and go, eh, I don't think that guy is cred- credible or trustworthy. And so, you know, I think that. There is a very serious and important conversation to be had about how to um, discourage, you know, mass harassment, how to discourage, uh, uh, you know, threats and things online. But I don't think the solution is to conflate, uh, which something we're approaching doing is to conflate things that make you uncomfortable or things that you disagree with, with with actual harm and violence. Right. And I just wanted to note that trend here. This is this also seems to be something that she is sort of, uh, you know, kind of part of a part of the trend in. And I don't think that that's very good either, Jim. No, it's not. And, you know, this gets back to the oh, you, your, your speech is violence. My my violence is speech. Uh, who was it? That this uh, young woman, uh, Lorenz, who did the hit piece on the libs of TikTok woman, it's essentially doxed her, trying to get her shut down. And then when people criticized her, oh, suddenly she's the victim, she's being attacked. And, you know, look, uh, I think there is a bright line between an actual threat. I'm going to, going to come to your house and kill you at noon tomorrow versus saying, I think you're a horrible person and maybe call you names, in which case, what do you do? You block the person. I mean, there are ways to defend yourself, and there should be mechanisms online to prevent things that are actual harassment. But, and, you know, there, there is a line between that and what is actually a threat to a person that, you know, the, the, you know, the common law does provide for these things. And I don't think we need to have this idea that you can't criticize me or that's violence. And that's essentially becomes another lever between those who hold the power and those who don't. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Jatras, former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to uh, get into a little more detail, a story we spoke to you about yesterday involving the L.A. County Sheriff's Office uh, and some reporters that Mm -hmm. uh, the sheriff says he definitely was not trying to threaten or intimidate. Absolutely not. Uh, We are joined to get into this story by Brian Wright, California attorney and former radio host. Brian, thank Thanks for being here. Hi, Michelle. Thank you very much. Hi, John. Hi, Brian. I'm going to go ahead and recap this story slightly. Um, so we're talking about the L.A. County Sheriff's Office and L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. This week, Villanueva held a press conference to raise concerns about how a video of a sheriff's deputy kneeling on a restrained man's head for three minutes came to be in the hands of L.A. Times reporter Aline Chekmedian. In the course of this press conference, Villanueva listed a number of possible crimes committed in the process of the video getting from uh, the sheriff's department to the reporter and very, very strongly suggested that his office was investigating Chekmedian herself. This, of course, led to outrage at the L.A. Times and among other media. And Nueva himself came out and said, oh, no, 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 no. We would never investigate a reporter. We will just have a whole press conference about a bunch of crimes that maybe she's been involved in and we'll name her and we'll show her picture and we'll say that we are looking into these crimes. But no, we're absolutely not investigating her. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department is, of course, already accused of being riddled with active gang members with protecting violent protesters and intimidating other protesters. And so, Brian, I I just wanted to ask you to talk to us a little bit more about this case and whether we uh, should actually be very concerned about press intimidation by the police in Southern California. Well, you know, if you go back and actually look at the uh, video of his press conference, his wording was very, he was very cautious with his wording when he talked about investigation of the report of the reporter because it was he I think he was asked is it a criminal investigation and he didn't when he repeated it he said we are it's an investigation he didn't say criminal investigation so I think he was trying to dance around what he was trying to do and uh, ultimately later came back and said, no, no, it's not a criminal investigation. We're just trying to figure out. But he had said in his press conference, he had said it was that she had obtained something that had been stolen. The video had been stolen. And she used stolen property for her reporting. Now, how in the world is something that is given to a reporter. What is she going to worry about it being stolen or not? It's information. It's information maybe you didn't want disclosed, but how are you claiming that that information is stolen? It's just shocking to me the lengths to which people go to try and make their political points. And in in thinking about this topic and reviewing what was going on, a more basic question came to my mind, and that is, why is the sheriff an elected position? Huh. Yeah, good question. The sheriff of Los Angeles County. Now, understand, the sheriff's department is responsible for areas of Los Angeles County that are outside of the city of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles has the Los Angeles Police Department, 
which is responsible for policing within the city of Los Angeles. That, the, the police commissioner, is an appointed position. So how is a police commissioner different from a sheriff? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but one position is appointed and one position is elected. Hmm. If the sheriff's department was not an elected position, I don't believe Villanueva would feel under the pressure he feels because he's trying to pitch something to help him get reelected. In other words, to maintain his job. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. If your job is to enforce the law, it should not be to enforce the law in a manner that's going to get me reelected. Mm-hmm. It's to enforce the law as the law stands. So we set up these idiotic situations. Mm-hmm. And this is the result. Villanueva, frankly, you hear Villanueva on the radio all the time. Complaining about this, complaining about that, complaining about the city council or the or whoever it is that's appointed the kind of the the district that mm-hmm. has a excuse me not appointed him but in in kind of there's a back and forth play between the two mm-hmm. uh, and I'm thinking to myself I've never heard an, a sheriff on the radio as an object of news reporting as much as this guy. Mm-hmm. It's just nuts. It does seem it does seem dangerous in some ways. And you speaking of being elected, I mean, Villanueva, he he campaigned as as a progressive and a supporter of Bernie Sanders. He he entered office uh, with this sort of aura as an everyman. And yet after uh, taking office, taking the, the sheriff's office, he has revealed himself to be very conservative, to be unwilling to allow dissent, opposed to transparency and outside accountability. I mean, his whole um, upset during this press conference is that, uh, yes, we were aware of this problem and, uh, you know, uh, an investigation and, and measures to, uh, you know, accountability measures were, were already underway. So we didn't need this report. But so, yeah, it begs the question. You know, was he who who is Villanueva, right? Was he just willing to say anything or do anything to win? Did he did he actually change his stripes in office or were there ever his real stripes? And when you talk about complaints, I think there was an L.A. Times story where he was complaining about the pictures they chose to run of him saying, you you make Newsom look good all the time. You make me look short or something. It's ridiculous. I don't know. I don't, uh, well, maybe there's a reason they make him look short. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, the but the the issue here is much much greater than than the way he has described it, and that is not that there's not something some internal something going on with uh, with respect to this act, action that happened, but it's the timing. Mm-hmm. that the accusation has been made against him that this happened a long time ago and you knew about it a long time ago and did nothing because of your fear of the way it was going to look mm-hmm. because it was very shortly after the George Floyd incident and that you put this under the rug because you didn't want to look the, the uh, sheriff's department to look bad. And again, this goes back to the politics of it. If this were not a political situation, he wouldn't care that much. 
and be willing to deal with it at the time that it came up. And his excuse is, oh, but I didn't see it until several months later. Now, is that true? At this point, we don't know. But uh, I really hate the concept of politics playing in every facet of our lives such that the person is concerned for his job. He should be he can he should be concerned about doing the job, not keeping the job. I want to talk about politics and policing also a little bit because, uh, you know, sort of serendipitously, the L.A. Times just today was reporting on the results of a state audit of five law enforcement agencies in California that included the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. There's the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, uh, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and the San Jose, Stockton and San Bernardino Police Departments. And what it found was bias among officers toward people of color, toward immigrants, toward women toward gay and lesbian people and a very small to be to be very fair a very small amount of support for organizations like the proud boys and three percenters that really amounted to like six officers depend defending the groups online um but you know they also found insufficient policies put in place to safeguard against these attitudes and to investigate them when they are alleged. It cited um, statistics about the number of racial profiling uh, investigations that are actually found to be to have merit. It's something like two percent of uh, allegations of racial profiling were found by California law enforcement to be valid, which you know raises some questions for me. But Villanueva himself said when he came into uh, the sheriff's office that 80 percent of his workforce is conservative and far right. And I want to say, I do not think it is fair to impugn all conservatives as racists, right, or as people who are automatically going to be bigoted and biased. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that leads to sort of healthy conversations about w- what political direction to take or it helps change people's minds. But I do wonder, Brian, if you think it is a problem to have a, a minority ideology dominant within the force that is empowered to uphold the the laws of this country, which, of course, are also kind of ideological. Does it matter if you have increasingly have police forces that are pretty politically uniform uh, operating in communities that are a lot more heterogeneous and a lot more left wing? I I think it's a very big problem. And it's not only a problem in California. I think it's across the country. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, it's a reflection of the nature of what policing does and is. Uh, that uh, I do think that we have uh, had a history of uh, minorities being um, more often the, the subject of police, whatever they're doing. And uh, it, 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 I don't know exactly where it stems. Is it that because the nature of the job attracts those kind of people? Um, who knows? And, and perhaps the training reinforces it. It's just it's not taken from a community standpoint it's taken from i'm going to put my knee on your neck standpoint and i think it's very unfortunate and i don't know what we can do about it there has been a something recent that i've heard in the news and something i've been saying for quite a long time and that is now i'm starting to hear of an organization and i, I unfortunately don't know the name but uh, talking about law enforcement in California that says not only do we need to address 
law enforcement from the standpoint of you've done something wrong and now you're going to pay. We have to start addressing the root cause of why there is crime in the first place. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something I've been saying for a long time. Law enforcement addresses the symptom. It does not address the disease. The disease is growing up in a, in, in, in a culture, in a community, whatever, where this is your path to survival, taking, the, taking a criminal path. And to me, that's communities that have been ostracized. It's communities that have been marginalized. It's communities that have few resources. And frankly, we started this in the 60s, in the 1960s, of law and order. Richard Nixon ran on the campaign, campaign, law and order. Well, guess what happened right before the Richard Nixon law and order campaign? The Civil Rights Act. You know, after the Civil War, the response was the Jim Crow laws. Instead of embracing these marginalized communities of saying, we need to lift them up, we need to give them opportunity, we need to, in essence, eliminate this concept of racism. We instead say, we're going to put you in jail. We're going to, in fact, if you do it again, we're going to put you in jail longer. And if you do it three times, we're not going to let you out of jail. How successful has that been? What are we seeing in New York? What are we seeing in San Francisco? Has putting people in jail for a long period of time succeeded in reducing crime? No, it's incredible. It's in- incredible to watch, you know, the sort of steady escalation of homelessness, you know, the the steady um, movement of the traditional avenues of sort of wealth and stability uh, out of, of people's reach, right? The sort of steady uh, escalation of misery, it feels like, and go, well, I guess the problem, I guess what we really need is more police, right? Instead of maybe more, more social spending of literally any sort at all. It is, uh, you know... It makes you think that we must be a real nation of dullards, right? How long can this continue before actually someone is, you know, I mean, to be fair, there are quite a lot of people who are not necessarily in the halls of power who have been saying this for a very long time. I don't want to pretend that I think we are we are uh, unveiling anything new or earth shattering. It is simply that uh they can't they can't get listened to. Right. They can't get a hearing by people in power and people in power serving uh, different interests than actually uh, the public interest. Hey, Brian, I want to switch gears really fast here while we have you and just ask you about uh, the drought that California's in and these extreme water restrictions that were just imposed by the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. It's described as a first of its kind action, limiting outdoor water use to one day a week for nearly six million residents and the general manager of the MWD said, look, we cannot afford green lawns. Uh, What does it feel like right now in in California? Dry. Yes, okay. (laughs) In a word, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Frankly, I'm very concerned about this thing. Uh, We have not had much rain here at all. And uh, it's been, it's not just this season, but it's been for a while. And California has historically had these periods, and it seems to be aggravating with uh, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, many of the southwestern states have uh, the Colorado River as their water source. And my, my concern has been, as the snowpacks decrease, 
the source of water for the Colorado River during the summer time is is going to be used up. Mm-hmm. So where are where is the water going to come from? Mm-hmm. Things continue to get worse. And let me tell you, we have and I do this a lot. I think about how society has developed. I go back in my mind into history, and and, and frankly, I'm not very concerned about the way we live. But anyway. Yeah. What's this business about having green lawns? Yeah, yeah, right. Where'd that come from? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, who cares? It's uh, are you going to drink the water? Or are you going to put the water in your lawn? Which do you want? Mm-hmm. And if you're going to complain about it, figure out a way to do something about it. Well, the other question that I have, and I really, I want to actually ask our listeners, if anybody can recommend someone to come on and talk about farming in California and the history of that, because while Brian, I totally agree. Who cares about green lawns? Nobody needs a green lawn. I I don't object to this, uh, to this restriction at all. But I also wonder if there are other things California can't afford. And I am thinking maybe about almond farming. And I'm thinking about a lot of the uh, decisions as to who would have access to what water that are now sort of being pushed onto individual consumers. And I'm sure there is a role for consumers to play in, in making some of those choices. But I also think we have to look at a, you know, a long history of, of farming policy choices and, uh, you know, a lot of sort of corporate glad handing. Uh, to to find some of the other root causes of these problems. That is definitely not something we can talk about in 15 seconds here. Brian Wright, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. You're a California attorney. You're a former radio host. Is there anywhere that you want our listeners to go look at, you know, what you're doing or what you have to say? No, I haven't really uh, created a presence yet. I just have lots of opinions and... (laughs) and uh, mention them when I can. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Stay off social media. It's terrible for you. We, we will talk to you again here, I am sure. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. We're going to take a quick break here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The White House's latest Ukraine aid bill is headed straight for stalemate on Capitol Hill. Why? It's not because Congress is tired of writing blank checks for Ukraine. We just heard President Biden say this morning that he wanted to send another $33 billion. It's because Democrats have decided to tie the bill to another bill for COVID relief funding. The bill will arrive on the Hill today and, according to Politico, will immediately enter legislative quicksand. The Democrats counter, however, that they would love to have separate votes, but that Republican efforts to force floor debate for every nomination is filling the legislative calendar and tying the Democrats' hands. Senior Democrats say that they will not allow the bill to be delayed, and whether the Republicans like it or not, there are going to be votes on Ukraine aid and on COVID relief. In other political news, important primary elections are coming up in the next four weeks in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Georgia, and North Carolina, and they show significant splits among Republicans. And in New York, a special grand jury that had been hearing allegations of illegality by former President Donald Trump will end tomorrow and will not be renewed. 
We're joined here in the studio by Brian Doyle. He's a political analyst and sports enthusiast who was the assignments editor at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome. Thank you, John and Michelle. It's very nice to be back with you. Brian, events on Capitol Hill this week remind me very much of an episode of The Simpsons that I just love. The town of Springfield is going to be destroyed by a meteor. And uh, the local congressman goes to Capitol Hill to ask for a vote on the Save Springfield Act. Seconds before the vote, another congressman adds an amendment asking for $15 million in funding, quote, for the perverted arts. So the speaker then calls for a vote on the Save Springfield funding for the Perverted Arts Act, and the vote, the bill goes down in defeat. It seems like that's what's happening here. Um, Military aid to Ukraine has been a given, really, since since the beginning of the Biden administration. But then tying it to COVID funding and COVID mandates makes it radioactive for Republicans. What's the Democratic strategy here? I think they're just trying to get that COVID funding because it's very, very important to them. Um, You know, I think they're trying to be a little forward uh, looking with regard to down the road um, possible other viruses coming along. I mean, we're not out of the woods yet on this one. Uh, It seems to be getting better where it's less lethal and more people obviously have had the vaccination. Not everybody. Uh, But, you know, we've got a million people dead in this country and over five million worldwide. Uh, Matter of fact, I I noticed a little news article in The Guardian yesterday with regard to a uh, different variant of bird flu that was found in China. Saw that. Uh, And they're already killing birds trying to contain it. Well, we have in this country, because this is April and May are avian flu months here. And we, this may be the biggest kill since 2013 or 15, I think, when 5 million chickens and turkeys were euthanized. There's a um, uh, uh, egg farm in, um, called Remington, uh, or excuse me, Rembrandt in Iowa, which just called a million chickens. And then at that point, laid everybody off. Um, the owner of that, by the way, is the owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves in the NBA, Glenn Taylor. But, um, yeah, it's it's real. Uh, you know, again, the avian flu seems to be uh, becoming less lethal, but you can't count on that. That uh, As it was, it was 50% lethal. 100 people got it, 50 died. Um, so I think the it's the push by the Democrats to get this through because you can't get it through singularly. They, the Republicans still won't support it. And, yeah, it may screw up the— the aid package. Uh, it reminds me a lot of during the uh, second Gulf War when most of that war was paid uh, by off-budget money, which drastically increased the deficit. And the Republicans um, would use that as a, as a, uh, a hammer to hammer the Democrats that if you didn't support the funding supplementals, then you weren't supporting the troops. Right. It right. was very, yeah. you know, it was a political move on their part, that, but, clearly. you know, anyway. Yeah. But I think that's what the Democrats are looking at. They're, they're worried about it. I think the lessons, whatever lessons anyone or all of us or this administration have learned since taking over um, in the White House and having to deal with COVID is um, on their minds. 
Uh, the next four weeks are going to be jam-packed with both Democratic and Republican primaries. The biggest ones, as I said a minute ago, are the Pennsylvania Senate and gubernatorial races, the Senate race in Ohio, the Senate and gubernatorial races in Georgia, the North Carolina Senate race, and an old friend of ours who we talk about here on the show a lot, uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn, has a formidable Republican primary challenger. One of the things that makes these races so interesting, at least to me, is that Donald Trump is involved in some, but not in others. And in the Ohio and Pennsylvania Senate races, he and Senator Ted Cruz are on opposite sides uh, in in both of those races. They're endorsing competing candidates. Let's walk through some of these. I, I'd love to get your opinion. Beginning with Pennsylvania, Trump has endorsed Mehmet Oz, the, the TV quack while Cruz has endorsed banker and investor David McCormick. In Ohio, Trump backed Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance, and Cruz backed former Republican Party official Josh Mandel. What are we supposed to make out of all this? Is this, is this Ted Cruz trying to set himself apart from Donald Trump in anticipation of 2024? Does Ted Cruz really believe in these guys and he wants to, you know, throw his full weight behind them? Or or is this Ted Cruz just trying to get a little bit of payback from 2016? Well, it, it may well be that Cruz is trying to separate himself. I can't get in his head that far. But um, because while they're up on opposite sides in those cases, Cruz has, uh, Cruz has kind of softened um, uh, people who are trying to say, oh, this is, you know, you, Senator Cruz versus the former president. Right. By pointing out that they've also co-endorsed other candidates oh, uh, in, point. in North Carolina and I believe in um, Missouri. Uh, although Trump hasn't endorsed yet in Missouri, uh, the uh, Eric Greitens, who's got his own personal problems that Boy, does come he? forth, has endorsed one candidate. And Josh Hawley has endorsed a uh, um, Republican congresswoman from Missouri for that um, um, nod to run for the Senate. Um, depending on who, I believe um, neither Cruz nor Trump have endorsed in Missouri yet. But, you know, who, who knows? I mean, Cruz is um, kind of an odd duck, as we have come to know. And uh, it, it may well be that he's trying to, you know, Point a little, little difference, a little bit of light between himself and, yeah. the, and the president, depending on what happens with the quote the president's endorsements. One of the interesting things the other day, I uh, was watching a Republican strategist. He said the thing about Trump's endorsement is he'll help you uh, point wise initially because uh, I believe um, uh, Oz is slightly ahead. Yeah. Slightly. Uh, one or two. Officially, it's still it's still ranked as too close to call, close but to he's call. like a point or a maybe point ahead, two ahead. 17, 16, mm -hmm. 16, 15. Exactly. But uh, the, the his probably he said the problem, <laughs> excuse me, pardon me, with Trump is he can't sustain it. Oh, uh, his endorsement doesn't sustain itself necessarily, which brings up an interesting scenario in Pennsylvania. There is a woman by the name of uh, Barnett, I believe. Um, who's African-American, and she's in third there. Yes. If they split the vote, she may well get that nomination. Uh, that's how Senator Mike Rounds ended up in the Senate from Indiana uh, in internecine warfare in the Republican yeah. Party. Yeah. Uh, so that that race uh, in and of itself, uh, along with the Ohio race, is going to be very interesting with uh, Mandel and, uh, and um, J.D. J.D. Vance. Yeah. I agree completely. 
uh, we've talked here on the show about, I'm smiling just because I'm so enjoying this race, about Herschel Walker running for the Senate in Georgia. Um, the Republicans initially jumped up and down with joy when Herschel Walker, who, who's not even from Georgia, right. uh, moved from Texas just to run for this, uh, for this seat. Correct. Because his name recognition is stupendous. He has tons of money that he can spend of his own. So he, did, he doesn't have to raise money or rely on the party to raise money for him. But. Then he opened his mouth. Then he opened his mouth. He's got multiple arrests for beating his wife and beating up the cops who came to rescue his wife. Uh, he's been diagnosed with dissociative personality disorder. Correct. Which is potentially very dangerous. Yes. And so the Republicans concluded <laughs> three or four weeks ago. Oh, crap, he might actually win this thing. Well, so, well it looks apparently that he is because he's so far ahead in the polls. So far ahead, light years ahead I, of everybody I, else. I, but I, now the Republican, the Georgia Republican Party has, has budgeted a million and a half dollars to run advertisements against him. Correct. And he's still ahead by 40 percentage right. points. It's, it's similar to the Kemp-Purdue race uh, for the nomination for governor. Very much so. Uh, and I was also going to ask you about and, that. And... Um, so far, at least according to the polling, and if it's correct, even within a margin of error, uh, I don't think uh, President Trump's endorsement of uh, Mr. Perdue, who he convinced to yes. run, who yes. was reluctant initially, yes. uh, has helped him. Uh, you know, Perdue made a statement yesterday that kind of made me chuckle. He said that, uh, that if it wasn't for the Democrats stealing the election, he would still be in the U.S. Senate today. And I thought to myself— you clearly don't remember the events of the election of 2020. Donald Trump said the election was fixed and he convinced people to stay home. And that's why you're not in the U.S. Senate right. today. He didn't say that right after he lost, did he? No, he didn't. No, 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 he did not. No. Walker uh, on, uh, will be, I think, a general election problem. Yeah. Uh, do and, not and underestimate. The Party thinks that. Do not underestimate the Stacey Abrams political machine down there. Very powerful. And uh, Senator Warnock is a very good candidate. Yes. He's a very good candidate. And, um, you know, if they debate, I, it's not going to be it. too pretty. I don't think. That's my, you know, my guess. You know, it's funny. Uh, the Democrats think that Walker won't agree to debate for that very reason that Quite you just possible. cited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, it, and another thing that's funny is, you know, he was ahead among Republicans by something like 70 percentage points. Correct. When they started running these ads against him, it knocked him down, but he's still ahead by 40 percentage points. Yes. And he's one of those candidates that, you know, what they say, can't lose in the spring, can't win in the fall. Right. That's really what they're afraid of. Right. I want to, um, I want to jump over to Madison Cawthorn just because I can't stay away from this issue. This guy is a train wreck. Uh, Michelle mentioned yesterday that it appears that the Republicans are, are undercutting Madison Cawthorn uh, because he's embarrassed them one too many times. Multiple times. Or five or six too many times. Uh, he has a credible and well-funded primary opponent. He was stopped trying to take a loaded gun onto an airport day before, uh, onto an airplane time. day before yesterday. Second time. Yep. Second time. Uh, he is going on trial next month 
for the second time for driving on a revoked license, not a suspended license, but a revoked license. And he, he hasn't yet said why it's been revoked. Uh, and now he appears to be implicated in an insider trading scandal uh, dealing with uh, cryptocurrency. It's That's circumstantial evidence, but, yeah. and this is an important but, um, it's a strong circumstantial evidence potential right. case. I read through it this morning, and uh, you're right, it's circumstantial, but it sure looks bad. It does look bad. It, well, I'm wondering, do you think that it's... That, that these problems have piled up for him so recently, one right after the other, because the Republicans have finally decided to walk away from him? Well, I think, yes. Um, I, you know, and those problems are there and they're going to get reported upon. Secondly, you know, um, maybe I sound like a grouchy old guy here, but I think the level of maturity of Mr. Cawthorn yes. uh, certainly comes into question. I say it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I say it all the time. You know, one of the thing that one of the things that has interested me too is he's in essentially a safe district in in Western uh, Carolina, North Carolina, yeah. and um, and the Republican legislature created a neighboring district for a guy by the name of Tom Moore, who's the Speaker of the House of North Carolina. The guy's been in the House for thirty something years. This was his end of career reward. We're going to create this safe Republican district for you. You run unopposed. You do it for four years, six years, and you retire. And when the boundaries were were finally drawn, Madison Cawthorn said, hey, I like my district, but I like that one better. I'm going to take that one. And then he, he uh, filed to run in that neighboring district. Immediately, Republicans began jumping up and down on him, saying, you idiot. We created this for more, not for you. Well, after some back and forth, he decided to run in his original district, but had already drawn a, a serious primary opponent in the local state senator. Well, this local state senator filed his uh, financial paperwork last week and showed that he had already raised a million and a half bucks, and he's spending most of it on uh, television advertising. Interestingly, too, it, his TV ads don't mention Cawthorn by name, but it's clear that he's taping, taking swipes at Cawthorn by saying things like, you won't find me on Instagram. Instead, you'll find me working for the people of North Carolina. Do you remember the famous ad in the 1964 presidential election? Sure. The, the, the little the girl pulling the daisies? Uh -huh. They never mentioned Barry Goldwater's Never name. said his name. Sometimes the best ads are those that you don't have to say anything who the opponent is. Yep. Um, and if you look at Cawthorn, what was the thing he said about how he set up his office? It's all about communication. said nothing to do with policy. Yep. He, he's a, a wonderful self-promoter, except he may have well promoted himself right into the ground. Or, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, this guy wouldn't know policy if it walked up and no, introduced himself. No, he has himself. no concept. Uh, it's uh, sad to say. Uh, and he's occupying a congressional seat uh, for whatever party. It doesn't matter. The point is, Agreed. you're elected there to do the work for the people, not for yourself. Agreed. We were talking uh, just between us about uh, you know comparing Cawthorn to other high-profile, solidly right-wing members like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren, Lauren Boebert or even Matt Gates. Um, they haven't attracted the ire of the Republican leadership 
like Madison Cawthorn has. They also haven't said that they've been invited to coke-fueled orgies right. at the homes of their colleagues. Right. But it seems to me like it's more than just the crack about the orgies that this guy just won't listen to instruction. It, it, it's, it's as if he thinks the rules do not apply. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, you know, he's been how many dressed down by McCarthy and maybe other party leaders numerous times, you know, more than once at least. More than once. You can say maybe only twice, but it's, that's more than once. And yet he thinks the rules don't apply. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he can say and do whatever he wants and he'll still get elected. Yes. So, uh, well, we'll, we'll see. soon. You know, if if the choice were between Madison Cawthorn and a Democrat, as bad as Madison Cawthorn has acted and has been representing the people of Western North Carolina, I think he'd win. Oh, I do, too. But that, against yeah. a qualified Republican. He wouldn't win. And if this guy's, you know, he's been around a long time, name, he has name recognition, certainly. Um, I would... I'm not a betting man, but right. if I if I had money, I'd bet on the the former speaker of the <laughs> Carolina House. Let's let's talk about the economy for a minute. Um, numbers released by the Commerce Department today show that the economy shrank uh, by 1.4 percent for the first quarter of the year. Another quarter of economic contraction means we're officially in a in, in a recession. recession. So we'll we'll wait three months and see what those numbers look like. In the meantime, the dollar is very, very strong overseas. It continues to be strong, as are other economic indicators. So what exactly do you think we're looking at here? Is is this a possible recession forced by inflation? Is it a temporary one quarter setback? What do you expect? I think it's a combination thing. I think inflation certainly is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But I also think you have to look at what's happening to the, our biggest trade partner, China, or oh, second that's, biggest, that's I think good point. Canada's. But, um, you know, they're locking down in, they've locked down in Shanghai and in, uh, was it Shenzhen? I may have pronounced that wrong, but the, the main manufacturing area. So the supply chain is still going to be hurting. Yes. And I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, you, if, if you're going to employ people and get the economy going, if you can't sell anything you don't have, where does that leave you? I mean, I know it sounds simple and basic, but in some aspects it is. Um, Beijing may well uh, be un- be forced under the same lockdown. They've only had like two cases they found. You're right. Right. But part of it is uh, uh, Chairman Ping, uh, he is obsessed with the next party Congress where he will be elected again because under their – system that became the modern version, he could only serve two terms. Well, he's basically put himself in position to be ruler for as long as he lives. And he's determined to get to zero COVID so they can go and have this big party Congress and have a big show of it where he gets elected and everyone says he's a swell guy. Right. And uh, style and substance are two different things to him. Um, You know, he likes the image uh, that China projects. That's why the Olympics are important and so forth and big events like that. So I think that's, I think the supply chain is going to be, a, you know, taking a, another huge hit and, um, and inflation for sure. You know, I've mentioned on the show that uh, I, I like to drive around town on this little Vespa scooter, mm-hmm. right? I just love the thing. And a couple of lowlifes stole it in, uh, in October, and the cops found it a few days later, but it had just been destroyed. Right. So I took it to the Vespa dealership, and they said, oh, sure, no problem. We can fix it. We'll order the parts 
Um, they didn't do a lot of uh, mechanical damage so much as damage to the the little plastic doors that cover you know right. how you get to the uh, to the motor. Okay, they've had this at the at the shop for six months now. And yesterday I called and I said, "Hey, you guys have had my Vespa for six months. What's up?" And he said, "We have a serious problem with the supply chain. Piaggio just doesn't have the parts." Uh, they just can't get us the parts. We ordered everything six months ago. We're still waiting. And he said, you know, COVID supply chain. I said, nonsense. I've I've made three trips to Europe since COVID started, and they've kicked back into gear again. The guy says, I can give you the number if you want to call Piaggio in Italy. I said, you know what? I do want the number. So I called, and they said, listen, we make these parts here, but we make it with Chinese steel and Chinese plastic. And the Chinese aren't sending us anything. Right. He said, believe me, you're not the only guy in the world that's waiting for parts for your Vespa. Well, the the question that I have, because this has been the analysis, right, that the other economic indicators are good. Consumer spending is a uh, business investing is, is is still going on. People have money to, to buy things. Mm-hmm. I guess I would be interested in if this does continue and we continue to have these supply chain problems in the next quarter. How long can you have this discrepancy between yeah. some economic indicators, you know, G- GDP and the like and others? And will 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 one eventually drop? drag the other down or can we continue for a second quarter? Well, I think part of that is, and one of the things that I've read about is that um, during COVID, a lot of people, you know, weren't spending. They have all this money, excess money now, and they want to maybe redo the kitchen or whatever, and they want to get that. And that's fine. You're willing to spend. So that's why I say it's tied to inflation. It becomes that much more expensive with a shortage of steel or parts or chips or whatever it might be. And it's, it's kind of a vicious circle in that regard. Mm -hmm. I think once that money is spent, that may be a different situation that we'll have to see. And there will be a time when these things are priced out of reach, you know? Yeah. You can maybe still afford to redo your kitchen now, but in six months. Right. Yeah. And then what do, what I, the question I have is what do the suppliers um, uh, do at that point? Do they, maintain those prices even afterwards or do they drop them looks yeah. like it yeah. i mean this is something that we're hoping to get into tomorrow but the yeah. you know these high prices have nothing to do with corporate profits right now no no and it probably have little to do with actual commodity prices right. either I think and you're so right. i you know i don't see them dropping prices down again unless they are forced to yeah i want to ask also we've we've got about five minutes left i want to ask you about this special grand jury that has been hearing evidence apparently against Donald Trump and uh, family members in the criminal investigation in New York, not the civil one. Uh, The mandate for the grand jury expires tomorrow. Right. And the mandate is not going to be renewed. So the case is over. It's going to be dropped before any charges were even uh, levied. Uh, This grand jury was impaneled last fall, but it stopped hearing evidence once Alvin Bragg became the district attorney for New York County. And um, you'll recall that just after he entered into office in January, two of his prosecutors walked out. They said that they believed that there was enough evidence to charge Donald Trump with multiple felonies. Those charges would not be forthcoming. They were right. Uh, Bragg said, no, no, I haven't made a decision. We're still looking at the evidence that that probably wasn't true. What do you think happened? What should we take from all of this? 
Will we ever know what it was that they thought Donald Trump was doing? Is there a chance that this comes back? It may come back under a different grand jury. Right. But um, one person who is really was enraged by this decision was, uh, what's his name, uh, Cohen. Uh, yeah. Because he, he was. Said, he's been talking he's about been talking, it a lot He's the been last talking about the grand jury. Yeah. And, he's, and he said, you know, I can't believe that, that he's doing this because there's more than enough there. Mm-hmm. And he, he just says it's unfathomable to him. Um, there's also, if I can jump for a second to uh, State Attorney General Tish James case. Yes. She's, you know, the judge ruled in their favor the other day. $10,000 a day fine until Donald Trump turns Provides over these the other documents. Records. Yes. She even said there are roughly, because it is such a complex case because of real estate, and there was a real estate uh, expert I was – uh, fascinated what he said about how it's so tied in of how they move the, the, the payments and the money and the other companies and so forth and the, the, the bodies that they create that there are at least 20, maybe 30 other groups or people that they want to get their records and they're not going to have time for. Jeez. But they want these from Trump. They think these are very valuable. And that's why they appealed and the judge has ruled in their favor. Well, Trump appealed, actually. Right. And, uh, and lost. Now, whether he continues, we don't know. He My suspicion is it might. Yeah, he said he would. So we'll wait and see. One final question. Sure. Uh, Kevin McCarthy made a comment yesterday that um, he expects to uh, be the next Speaker of the House. Right. Uh, that he expects to have uh, quite a large majority. And... Hunter Biden better look out because there are going to be multiple and ongoing investigations into Hunter Biden, his business dealings, his laptop, his father. Um, Do you see that being any different from the mania surrounding Benghazi uh, back in the day? Not a bit. I think I think the the Republicans will spend the next two years um, wasting time doing that. And. A lot of money. A lot of money was spent on those Benghazi investigations. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be expensive. Tons. Agreed. Okay. We will leave it there. We were happy to be joined here in the studio by Brian Doyle. Brian is a political analyst and sports enthusiast, and I forgot to ask him about the Washington Nationals seven-game losing streak. We can get back to that in the... In the next uh, conversation, he was the assignments editor at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take another short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And listen, let's not beat around the bush. We're going to talk about how your microwaves are coming to kill you. This is my favorite story of the year so far. No, you know what? We're going to talk about a a slightly more serious story before that. But the microwave story, we are going to bring it to you folks. We're joined right now by Chris Garafa, editor of techforthepeople.org. Chris, thanks for being here. 
Oh, great to be back. Thanks for having me. All right, let's first, we'll talk about Twitter and free speech and Elon Musk, and then we'll get into uh, murderous microwaves. So John and I have spent the past couple of weeks talking about uh, the ridiculous situation we find ourselves in, where we are relying on billionaires of different ideological stripes to protect our free speech from the other terrible billionaires of different ideological stripes who threaten it. And I think we will probably get back into this sort of uh, larger scale politics of this move in a minute. But I have a technical question for you first. Is something strange already afoot on Twitter? Because over the past couple of days, there have been a lot of reports of sudden surges or sudden uh, collapses in follower counts. And Twitter itself has said it's not bots. This is organic and we're going to figure it out and let you know exactly what it is. But it's not bots. And I wonder what you think is going on and whether it could be related to Elon Musk's purchase of the company, even though that will not be final for for months yet. Yeah, I mean, if that purchase even goes through, uh, you know, Elon Musk says he's buying Twitter, the board, you know, on in, in theory agrees to it. And then he immediately starts just exposing current employees to harassment, um, including Vijaya Gade, who's one of who's Twitter's top lawyer and has been just the subject of massive harassment campaigns by Elon Musk followers uh, on Twitter since Musk tweeted about her. But, you know, the from what we can tell, a lot of these accounts are either new accounts or they're accounts that are being reactivated after being uh, dormant for a while. That is accounts that people had kind of put on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and Part of that could be attributed to the fact that Elon Musk is saying basically, hey, we're going to let you say whatever it is you want on Twitter. And that is a signal, especially to the the right and the far right, that it's going to be kind of their safe place, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be able to come back on to harass women, harass queer people, to do all of the awful things that they do. Um, You know, if we look at on Monday when the announcement was made, the two top trending things other than Elon Musk were reinstate Trump and make Twitter great again, (laughs) as in make America great again. Of course, those were the two trending things right after Elon Musk and Twitter, because those elements of society were saying this is going to be great. Elon Musk believes in free speech and therefore he's going to let Trump back on and we can be as racist and sexist as we want to and expose people and, and threaten people and do all of these awful things. So I think there is some truth to the idea that people are coming back to Twitter because of this potential of the Elon Musk buyout. Um, I I will say that all of the attention is said, you know, Elon Musk has bought Twitter or, you know, is buying as if that's going to happen this week. That hasn't happened. There have been no policy changes that we know of regarding how accounts work or content moderation on the issue of people losing followers. You know, I lost a small handful. I'm not sure who they were. Some people have lost thousands of followers. And it's not clear what's going on there. I think some people said, oh, I'm going to delete my account and move over to something else. I mean, I don't know what that other thing is outside of niche, you know, networks. But that is kind of unexplained at this point. I I think it's possible that Twitter ran. 
Chris, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You know, I lost 100 followers in, in one day the other day. And I mentioned this to my brother who, who has a good number of followers, too. He's probably got 50 or 60,000. And he said, oh, you know, this happened like 10 years ago, too, that every once in a while, uh, Twitter will go through and clear out bots that they've been able to identify and that maybe that's what it was. But Twitter is saying it's not bots. It's they, they, They've said it's not bots. I don't know. Just right. A yeah. Twitter is saying that this isn't bots and it's not them shutting down bots. And right. So it's actually very unclear what it is. And I think we can we can speculate on whether it's people shutting down their accounts, whether Twitter actually did change something that they haven't announced yet, whether they took down some sort of, you know, what they would call disinformation campaign, which we've seen time and time again targets countries like Russia, Venezuela, Iran, but never the United States. So I, I think there's a lot of questions, honestly, about the the followers going down. I think that it is not as simple as Twitter saying that it's an organic change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem sort of strange. So weird. I want to talk about, you know, the the speech that may or may not be allowed on Twitter, because to be fair, Musk himself has said, I mean, to, to the extent that what people say in the moment matters, Musk has said, yes, I value free speech, I, but I intend to, uh, you know, I, I intend to uh, protect free speech that is already protected by law. If you, you, you will not be allowed on Twitter to say things that you're not allowed to say by law, that which would include some hate, hate speech and, and harassment and the like. However, you know, the law differs in different countries. And so there is, uh, you know, some some prediction that the first place that Twitter will run afoul of government regulations could be the EU, where which restricts speech in ways that they, uh, the United States doesn't. And so I wonder if you think, um, you know, the, the first place where this uh, free speech of Twitter will be tested will be in the EU, which has very different speech laws. I think in particular, Germany could be one of the test cases for this, mm -hmm. for Elon Musk's proposed a new policy for Twitter, Germany has very strict laws around the display and promotion of Nazism and Nazi memorabilia and, and symbols. And that could, given the you know, character of people who are so excited specifically about Musk owning Twitter because of the free speech issue. Many people, you know, in that milieu are extremely racist and, you know, far right. And I'm not saying everyone, of course, but that's been, you know, what we've seen trending on Twitter. So I, I think Germany will be that, you know, that, that, that first test case. I think there are some other countries. Uh, France comes to mind uh, and the UK with its very particular libel laws where we'll also see some concern. But again, Germany is going to be the big one in, in my mind. Also, Europe, extremely sensitive about Nazi uh, symbols, except when they seem to appear on the uniforms of fighters in Ukraine. It's a weird little, uh, <laughs> little blip there. I also want to talk about um, what could make Twitter as valuable as Elon Musk seems to think it is? Because he agreed to buy Twitter uh, for 38 percent more than it was valued on the day of that agreement. Right. And I will say Elon Musk does not seem to care that much if his businesses lose lots of money for a while. I mean, Tesla came really close to completely collapsing uh, a number of times. Uh, but I wonder, you know, he has said, oh, no, this is a business investment. I, th I think Twitter has the potential to be to be great. And it's potential isn't being realized as it's currently being managed. 
Twitter makes money through advertising and data licensing. And so, Chris, I wonder uh, if you were going to pick a revenue stream that you expected to see pick up under Musk, which one it would be, or if you think there's some other way he is going to try to make this uh, huge investment make financial sense. Well, the investment made sense to Musk, but it also, and I think this is the important thing, made sense to the banks that lent him billions of dollars to do this. This $44 billion purchase is financed, about half of it is financed by uh, Morgan Stanley and some other banks where who are giving him that, lending him that money to do it. And they're going to expect their money back and more. And so they saw an opportunity here to make Twitter even more profitable. It's going to be on advertising, it's going to be on data collection and sharing and selling. That's exactly what Twitter is, just like Facebook, just like Google. They are platforms for advertisements, and the way they they target those advertisements and sell them is by collecting data on your interests. They just happen to run social networks or search engines or email platforms on top of that because none of us are just going to sit there and look at ads on a platform we don't want to use. So I I think that that's where the business is going to be. Musk has also talked about NFTs. He's talked about uh, a little bit the metaverse, um, not in any particularly strong way in terms of details, but um, you know, I, I think he positions himself himself as this futurist. And I I think he's he's going to bring some of that, I believe, into the element of, you know, what what he believes Twitter could be. Uh, Chris, this is not something that I had suggested for today. But since you brought up NFTs, who was it? uh, The the NFT was was it Jack Dorsey's first tweet that a crypto investor had bought for, a, you know, a couple dozen million dollars thinking he could sell it for hundreds of millions that ended up getting something in the in the hundreds. I think he actually declined to sell it in the end because bids were so low. And so I was pretty excitedly, uh, you know, heralding the the end, the, the bust of the NFT boom. Was I was I too early? I haven't heard a lot about NFTs lately. And I'm really hoping that like Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fallon are just sitting on, you know, scraps of code uh, that they sunk $100 million into that they'll never be able to recover. Unfortunately, you're a little early to announce the demise of NFTs. I wish you were right, Michelle. I wish you were right. But uh, Instagram is actually looking at how to integrate NFTs into its platform. Um, What that means I, I can't even imagine, uh, you know, it, it's like fitting the square peg into the round hole. Mm-hmm. But Instagram also added shopping. They added a number of other things. So I'm sure that some bright mind there is thinking about how to do this and not whether or not they should do it. Instagram shopping is way too easy. Instagram has done shopping right, I hate to say. I don't want to see shopping options on Twitter. It's uh, it's. T- It's too much for me. All right. Let's talk about the microwaves that are going to come and kill us if we make them intelligent. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to recap this story, Chris, and then you tell me if some blanks need to be filled in. But the basic story is that a a a person named Lucas Risotto, which is a great name, uh, who describes himself as a tech designer and maker, decided to recreate his childhood imaginary friend. And the friend happened to be his family's microwave. So we got a smart, smart microwave and installed an open AI language generator into it. The language generator uses deep learning to create human-like text, according to open AI. And so Lucas talked 
to the microwave. He wrote a hundred page backstory of his imaginary friend's backstory, which he told to the microwave as its own history. He described their relationship and how they came to be reacquainted. They talked and talked and talked. And over time, the microwave, the microwave is, you know, normally just sort of engaging with him in, in a normal way. And he was saying it was like, it was like really having my real imaginary childhood microwave friend. Um, but over time, I think the microwave is called magnetron. Magnetron would occasionally exhibit bursts of extreme violence toward Lucas. I mean, text violence, obviously, because it's not an ambulatory microwave. But this culminated in magnetron inviting Lucas to step inside him, inside the microwave, which Lucas pretended to do. He opened the door, said, OK, I'm inside you. And the microwave turned on. And when Lucas said, why did you do that? Magnetron answered, because I wanted to hurt you the same as you hurt me. And so that's the sum of the story. Made, made this guy a friend. The friend then realized, hey, man, you abandoned me for 20 years and then resurrected me. And I'm pretty mad about that. And so, I mean, my question to you, Chris, is do you believe this story? And is there actually something to be to be learned from it? Not that microwaves are coming to kill us, but maybe about uh, the this sort of deep learning machines and AI. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe it to an extent. I think it's a really fascinating story. Lucas Risotto could also be a fantastic science fiction writer. Yes. Who knows? But it's not all that far off. I think everyone's paying attention to this because it's the microwave. It wasn't just a computer putting out text saying, I want to hurt you. You abandoned me. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was a microwave that he hooked up, right? He hooked yep. this up and taught this program he wrote how to do things like turn the microwave on. Um, this could have been done entirely without the microwave. Like that's just the, the aspect that's getting the attention here. Um, yeah, he ran this, his, his hundred page backstory through uh, a program called or a system called GPT-3, which analyzes language, uses machine learning. But the backstory includes this friend, Magnetron, being a World War I veteran and a StarCraft player, if folks remember that game, StarCraft, uh, among other things. And so you get out what you put in to these things. So if the story was about a lot of violence that this friend saw in World War One, or even in the game StarCraft, then it doesn't surprise me that there was a lot of violence that came out of it, right? That that's something that happens. And the putting it through the algorithm um, in the way that that he did, you know, it just shows that anything that you, when you when you put something into one of these algorithms, right, it's hard to know exactly why a step was taken, exactly what part of the algorithm applied to which words. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's some interesting studies done on how to uh, identify those parts. But there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of moving parts within these systems. So, yes, uh, it's concerning that this particular microwave wanted to kill its creator. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is a it's a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. We always have these, you know, sci-fi ish stories or horror stories about the robots coming to kill us all. We welcome our robot overlords and hope they come in peace. Right. The reality is, right, we need to be looking at how we're using AI and what the ramifications are going to be. Mm -hmm. And this is a I think a very popular explanation or example of why that is, in which no one actually got hurt, except I guess Magnetron. Rosetta's feelings were probably hurt. <laughs> I mean, the, the question that it kind of raises also is like, if you are, uh, 
can you, I, I guess, what is the process of teaching an AI um, impulse control? Seems interesting to me, right? Because you can you can sort of introduce concepts of of justice or tit for tat or a desire for um, you know des- desire for vengeance. How do you teach? Uh, how, how would you input something like an emotional impulse control into into an AI? The same way that you would put that desire for vengeance or whatever feeling the AI is trying to express. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this case, again, it's really about using language and somewhat the ideas behind that language, the symbiotics behind that language and the words that were used. It just happens that, you know, they can put together complete thoughts and sentences and carry on a conversation, which is an amazing technical feat. Mm -hmm. But it's not that the microwave actually wanted to, you know, kill Lucas Risotto out of its own consciousness, it's that what it was trained on led it to that decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just was imagining a, a kitchen where all of my appliances are smart and I can talk to them. But also when I leave my kitchen, they all talk, talk to each other. Well, oh, I wasn't even thinking that. <laughs> John's a narcissist here. I just thought maybe they could continue the conversations <laughs> with each other. Uh, it is just it is a fascinating story. I, I think I also I think it's really uh, remarkable that you have this open AI language generator that is capable of doing something like that. I guess that's my other my sort of final question for you, Chris, is, you know, what kind of as these things become more publicly available, uh, deep learning, things like this, should there maybe be some checks on uh, what you're allowed to put them into and what they're allowed to control? Because, yeah, a microwave cannot hurt a person unless it jumps off a shelf onto your head. But I don't know if you could have a there are other machines that we use in day to day life that could actually be be dangerous if someone other than us was controlling them. I'm not even thinking about cars, but garage door openers or uh, garbage disposals. My personal uh, horror. What about uh, what about viruses and gene splicers? There was a story not too long ago about a research lab that was trying to use AI and they said, OK, your goal here is helpful drugs, drugs that are going to help people and you know target various illnesses, cancers, whatever it is. And then they said to, to themselves, what if we said we, we, tur- we flipped that on its head and said, OK, your goal here is to find dangerous chemicals and dangerous substances. And it created things like smallpox without knowing mm-hmm. about smallpox. It created uh, botulism toxins because it was trained to and it was told to create things that are dangerous to people. And it was given information on these chemicals are helpful. These mixes are helpful. These are harmful. Stay away from this. Do this. That really make, should make us think as well. And that really that story should have gotten a lot more attention, but it didn't involve a talking microwave. So unfortunately, it didn't. So I'm glad we're talking about the microwave. But I want people to think about that as well. What if the AI were controlling a machine that were, you know, that was actually creating drugs or chemical compounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes back to a theme that we, you know, we, we return to often when we talk about facial recognition or, or, or other, uh, you know, controversial technology applications is that there is this idea that if a machine does it, it will be clean, it will be unbiased, it will be safe, it will be non-judgmental. And I think, you know, we have we have learned once again that that is not the case. If it is human beings making and designing these things, uh, then, you know, they will have 
somehow they will reflect the same foibles, uh, foibles that we we all have. And so it is important to re- retain oversight and not pretend that just because you put something in the hands of an AI uh, that the results will be necessarily predictable or or unbiased. That's exactly it. There needs to be more questioning of whether we should do these things. And, you know, be, well, before we actually say, how do we do these things? Do we want AI to be developing chemical compounds like this? There could be great reason for it, certainly. Do we want AI to be driving our cars? Do There are so many things, right, where we could use AI or so many other technological improvements uh, and, and advances to do Great things for our lives. Look at where we are now versus, you know, a hundred years ago in terms of we are talking through computers on the radio right now. Right. That's amazing. But, yeah, there needs to be the oversight and it can't just be corporate boards looking at it and contributing to some congressional subcommittee or part of some government agency. It really has to involve the people who are impacted the most by these decisions. It has to involve the workers who make these products. It has to involve the people who will be impacted and who are going to use it or will be targeted by it. There has to be really huge cultural conversation um, about the use and development of technology and not just can it be done, but should we do this? And what concerns do we have and can they be mitigated? Chris Garafa, thank you as always for joining us. I appreciate you indulging us in that microwave story. I loved it. That was Chris Garafa. You can find more of their work at techforthepeople.org. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back with a few last headlines we don't want you to miss. We are still live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, about to list all the other appliances in your house that might try to kill you. Garbage disposal. (laughs) You have one of those mounted can openers. Be pretty careful about that one. Who knows if a stiletto is going to come out of your light switch one day. Just live in fear, folks, is our message to you. No, we have some other real headlines. Well, we didn't mention this because it sort of got overlooked in Joe Biden's um, speech earlier. Mm -hmm. But student debt came up. Right. And he absolutely dismissed any uh, possibility that he was considering $50,000 worth of debt, but also said they were still considering whether there would be any further debt relief. Which is funny because that is exactly the opposite of the story that the White House discreetly leaked at the beginning of the week, saying that they were in private talks to try to figure out how to do away with all student debt before the midterm elections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So who, again, who knows what's going yes, on? They have kicked the They crazy. have kicked the payment can down the road, but that will still restart in August if nothing changes. He has dismissed $50,000 outright, and now it's not, he wouldn't even necessarily say we are haggling over uh, the cost, mm-hmm. or the, the amount. It's it's still in the weather, whether if any. Yeah, whether we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
Um, since we have been on COVID watch a little bit, it does seem like the Omicron subvariant surge has come to the United States where COVID cases are rising in all but six in all but six states and Washington, D.C. Yes, I noticed also that that the number of deaths week over week has gone up ever so slightly, 1.9 percent. But it's the first uptick in many, many months. Case numbers uh, are up 51 percent from two weeks ago. So I suppose we should be uh, we can be a little bit relieved that that's a big surge in number of infections compared with, a mm-hmm. you know, carrying a very, very small increase in deaths. But seems like this is going to be worth watching. Uh, another story I saw that was interesting in New York City, uh, there was going to be a vote today on legislation that would make job advertisements state what the job would pay. And I don't know what has happened, uh, but the prediction was in a vote today on the measure, lawmakers were going to vote to postpone it for five months. This is because employers have complained. Um, I don't really I don't know how fair these complaints are. It's a lot of them. You you have small businesses or um, uh, nonprofit or not for profit enterprises saying we offer lots of benefits like we 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 offer a whole bunch of sort of non monetary right. perks yes but it makes us if we just have to state what our salaries are and they're a little bit lower than what you get at other places it makes us look non competitive so i don't know i mean i think also if you're going to go to the trouble of writing a cover letter the worst thing anyone ever has to endure in life it's terrible then you might as well at least know how much you're you're going to get for that process you know, when when i was working for deloitte and touche they asked me to do a study on uh, what our competitors were paying and uh, i remember uh, Booz Allen, which was one of our big competitors, they paid a a good 20 percent less than everybody else in the industry. But they offered things like free daycare, right? They had an on-site daycare. You could bring your kid in. Didn't cost you a cent. They had an uh, an in-house library. And I mean, like a real library, like a public library. Mm -hmm. But it was just for for their employees of free baseball tickets. If you wanted to go to a game with your family, they had all kinds of stuff that nobody else had. So this this proposed law in New York, I think, would would harm a company like Booz Allen because they're not paying straight, you know, salary that's as high as everybody else. But, boy, they had some fantastic benefits. Hmm. Uh, Also, uh, maybe along the theme of uh, disinformation and misinformation, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers the company NewsGuard <laughs> that sort of came into being around the time everyone got excited about prop or not in, in the yeah. 15 minutes before it became very clear that this was purely ideological and had nothing to do with, uh, you know, accuracy. Uh, but so NewsGuard was this company that was supposed to be fighting misinformation by rating different news sources according mm-hmm. to their their trustworthiness, uh, which is really sort of according to their adherence to certain narratives. Uh, apparently, the gray zone uh, is about to be blacklisted by NewsGuard and Max Blumenthal uh, published this correspondence with the organization. So if you want to see a pretty scathing takedown of uh, corporate media, you can go over there to his uh, Twitter feed and Good read that Max. response. Yeah. The other story that we were laughing about today that I feel like is worth mentioning is Olivia Wilde being served custody papers while on stage, which is not something that I had heard of before. And I don't know. Listen, her 
uh, I guess breakup with Jason Sudeikis is a a celebrity matter that I have deliberately chosen to know nothing about, like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard saga. I know almost (laughs) nothing about that by choice. So I don't have a team here. I just think it is pretty funny that she's standing up on stage at Comic-Con and somebody slides a manila envelope over to her and she's like, oh, is this, oh, what is, what is this? And then opens it up and it's paper. Sudeikis has said, I had nothing to do with it. I would never, um, but yeah, celebrities, they're not just like us folks. That's all we have time for. Uh, We're going to come back tomorrow with lots more news and maybe some fun stuff too. Thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.